We began last week a message series entitled Shipwreck. We're in the second week of it just by way of review. We discussed last week that sometimes we find ourselves at a point in life where it seems like all of our hopes and dreams that we had for life are now sunk beneath us. In short, we've experienced a shipwreck. We boarded this ship of life, headed on a journey and a voyage that was supposed to take us there And somewhere along the way, after maybe a diagnosis or the divorce or the bankruptcy or the conviction or the job loss, we find ourselves here, and here was never in the plans. We didn't arrive at our intended destination, and it wasn't even a sometimes out of a nowhere sort of a thing. It was sort of like we hit an iceberg, and for hours, maybe years, we took on water. It was a slow-motion accident that... Is unfolding, and it felt like we feels like we felt every moment of it. But here we are. Now what? How do you survive a shipwreck? And last week we said, in order to survive a shipwreck, the number one thing is it will completely depend on your mental reaction to it. And so we talked about things like staying calm. And in the moment of shipwreck and crisis, you don't have any room in your life for voices that either sound like Eeyore or that are too Pollyanna in your situation. We talked about the paradox, uh, the Stocksdale paradox, that says. In the midst of the shipwreck, we want to retain faith that we will prevail in the end. And it might even be the the most defining moment of our life, regardless of the difficulties. And also, at the same time, to be able to confront the most brutal facts of our current reality, whatever they might be. And then we went on and read about one of the shipwrecks that the Apostle Paul was involved in in Acts chapter 27. And out of it talked about how to have courage and how to not be afraid and how to have faith in God in the midst of our shipwrecks. And so the messages are online. If you missed last week's, you can catch up there. I want to tell you two stories about survival and shipwrecks. The first one are three fishermen from Mexico named Lucio, Salvador, and Jesus. Now, they have last names, but for me to pronounce it would be a shipwreck in itself. So we're going to go with just Lucio, Salvador, and Jesus. They had two other companions who were with them when they set off in a 25-foot fiberglass boat to go shark fishing. So it was early on October 28, 2005, they left the port in Mexico, and after they went and baited and prepared to place their shark fishing equipment, they celebrated and they prepared for the big catch that they expected to come the following day. The following day, they returned to where they thought they had left the rigging, but it was gone. And so they spent the next couple of hours and all of their fuel looking for the expensive equipment. And by the time they ran out of gas, they were too far away from shore to row back, and the winds combined with the westerly current swept them out into the middle of the ocean. Now, they left with supplies for about four days. But after this time had passed, they became increasingly aware of their growing thirst. There was no more fresh water, and they had run out of food. And for three days, they drank and ate nothing. And on the third day, the men succumbed to their intense thirst, and they actually decided to drink the ocean water which, of course, just made them sick. But about the fourth night, all of a sudden, there was definite moisture that could be felt in the air, and by that next day, even though they had been without water, a light drizzle started to fall. So what they did is they took their fuel containers and they cut the tops off, washed it off with the seawater, and they began to collect as much of the rainwater as they could. In the end, they had 200 liters of fresh water. Food was not so easy. Lucio, one of the fishermen, said, We only ate twice in November. Hunger like I had never before imagined. The first meal that had, they had was a sea turtle that surfaced for some air. So they lifted it out of the water. They cut its head off and drank its blood, and they shared the flesh between the three men. They ate it raw. The other two companions could not stomach the thought of eating raw flesh. 
and they died of starvation by the end of November. They continued to catch turtles. Salvador even made a little turtle tally on the boat. He put a little mark for every time they ate a turtle. It was 103 turtles by the time they were rescued. And seabirds, and after a few months, they made hooks from nails and screws and used the barnacles that were starting to build on the hull of the boat as bait. They could use the barnacles to catch small fish and then use the small fish to catch larger fish. And doing this method, they managed to catch all sorts of things like dogfish and sharks and sawfish and dorado. They salted and even dried some of their meat to save it for times that they couldn't fish. It's believed that the only reason they didn't get scurvy is because as they were eating the raw fish, flesh had just enough vitamin C to keep that from happening. The men drifted until August 9, 2006, when they were spotted on the radar by a Taiwanese fishing trawler. So the trawler inspected and came across the three very skinny but healthy men, and they were saved. They spent over nine months lost at sea. And this landed them in the record books as the longest sea survival ever. Could you imagine? Lost at sea for nine months. Now, forget the sea. I'm going to kill anyone I'm in a boat with for nine long months. Like, we will not be. They found the men 200 miles from the north coast of Australia. They had drifted over 5,500 miles across the Pacific Ocean. By the 25th, they were back at home, and the townspeople believed their survival was, in fact, a miracle, a miracle that happened to three men whose names, incidentally, meant Savior, Jesus and Salvador and Light, Lucia. Nine months. Second story, into contrast with the first. On April 25th, 2005, two boys, Josh Long, who was 17, and his best friend, Troy Driscoll, who was 15, decided they wanted to go shark fishing. So they launched their boat into the sea near where they lived in South Carolina without noticing the riptide warning flags that were on the beach. So the tide swept them out faster than they could ever dream of paddling back, and within minutes, they struggled over and over again to get back. In the struggle, Josh knocked his brand-new fishing rod overboard, and it sank in the sea. And over frustration at losing his brand-new fishing rod, he decided to throw the rest of the bait over as well. So they began their journey without any food or water, or any means of acquiring either. In addition, they didn't have any shade or anything else besides the clothes on their back to shelter them from the blazing sun. To prevent heat stroke, they would take short dips in the water, but after a close encounter with a shark, they stopped doing that as well, and they managed to hold on for an incredible six days with no water. On the sixth day, after scratching dying messages onto the boat for their families, they heard another boat and managed to signal them to stop. And after the rescue, the boys were taken to the hospital with such severe sunburns and dehydration that Troy's condition was so poor that the doctors said they didn't think if he were out there for even a few more hours, he would have survived. Now, here's what you need to know in all of this. Finding food and water is critical, and it's essential in terms of surviving a shipwreck, as the first story illustrates. But the truth is, your body can survive quite a long time without food. And even though it can't survive as long, your body can go days without water. But the condition that is the hardest to survive is a third, and that is exposure. The greatest danger you face in the event of a shipwreck is not the lack of food or water. The thing that's the greatest danger to you is exposure. You're in the middle of the ocean, and there's nothing between you and the glaring sun all day, and the heat, and the salty waters, and the winds, and the element, and you are in danger. Or if you're wet, and it's cold out in the sea, and it's windy, you're exposed to those elements, and you are in danger of what we call exposure. Now, the scientific 
explanation is hypothermia. And hypothermia is when your body temperature drops at such a rate that you cannot, in the end, survive. You could die quickly of hypothermia. We were taught in the Boy Scouts of America if somebody had hypothermia, that the best thing you could do is take off all of their clothes, take off your clothes, and huddle together and use body heat to warm up, which as a kid in the Boy Scouts, that's like, really? So if you're going to get in a shipwreck, make sure they're cute in case hypothermia sets in, I think, is the moral of the story. Or to the other extreme, if the sun is beating down on you all day, it's hyperthermia. It's where your body temperature rises to a level that it cannot be sustained, and we eventually call it heat stroke or heat exhaustion. And it is this condition of exposure that results in hypothermia or hyperthermia that is your greatest danger and risk in the event of a shipwreck. And so what you need then to combat exposure is protection and covering. The shipwreck itself has left you vulnerable and exposed. If you're going to survive this traumatic event, it will only be by finding some way to get protection and covering from the effects of exposure. And what is true in the ocean, I'm telling you, is also true in your spiritual life as well. That when you've experienced a shipwreck in life, when it feels like everything you had hoped for and dreamed for and prepared for and expected or desired all sinks around you, when your life dreams are sinking all around you, you are going to enter into one of the most extremely exposed and vulnerable places of your life. I mean, imagine for a moment, if you've never been there, most of you probably at least at some time have experienced it, where you enter into that place where everything you'd prayed for and prepared for is no longer relevant that everything you counted on in regards to consistency is now gone. And sometimes even the clearest identities we have for ourselves is immediately gone, just like that. And that's why like, things like divorce is so painful, because everything you counted on, everything you prepared for, everything that was consistent by way of expectations is gone. And even your primary identities, you were wife or husband, you were married or co-parent, and now new realities have set in of ex-wife and ex-husband or divorced or single parenting, and in those moments, we become very vulnerable and sometimes panic. That's what we talked about last week, but we find ourselves exposed, and sometimes we could just be telling the story. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where maybe you were in a small group setting, and you had to go around and tell an aspect of your story, and you shared something in your life that was just a very difficult time, and when the time you're done with the story, you feel vulnerable once again. You feel exposed all over again as the thoughts begin to take place in your mind. I wonder what they think of me now. I wonder if They'll still treat me the same? Will they still want to hang out with me? Will they let their kids play with my kids? Will I be ostracized? I mean, those are the things that when you feel exposed and, and vulnerable that start to go through your mind. You need to know this. In life's shipwrecks, there are things you're going to be exposed to. Let me, let me give you a few of them. Number one, in the shipwrecks of life, you will be exposed to Satan's temptations and lies. Like when things are sinking all around you, you will be in a very intense way exposed to Satan's temptations and lies. And you know why? Because he's a big jerk like that. He's like that, you know the bully on the playground that because he happens to be taller and bigger than all the other kids, thinks he can do whatever he wants, and he kind of finds the one kid that's kind of the smallest or, the, you know, kind of he feels like he can't defend himself, and he kind of pushes him. That's what Satan's like. He waits for those moments when we feel like we're most vulnerable, most weak, and like a big bully, he shows up and picks on us. Or he's sort of like in the National Geographic specials. You ever watch what lions do? Like they kind of look for kind of the most exposed, the most vulnerable, or they work together as a pack to wear down their prey. And sometimes Satan's like that where, yeah, the moment you show weakness or the moment that you know, he kind of comes on it. In fact, even the Bible tells us, right now no one's listening to a word I'm saying, like, what's that lion going to do? What's gonna, right? There's a guy preaching. All I see is a video. Okay. 
in the end, the water buffalo. Okay, this, so this is what the Bible says in First Peter, that Satan is like a, right? He, you're, he's your enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's kind of like sharks in the open sea. Do you know what attracts sharks? Blood. In fact, they can smell it miles. Did you know that sharks can smell blood miles away? And so when there's blood in the water, nobody get in the water because it, it is a shark magnet. And when your life experiences a shipwreck, Satan is sort of like a shark that smells blood or a lion that sees an opportunity to devour somebody that God loves. And if that happens, and it will, I'm telling you, in the midst of your shipwreck, you will feel exposed in a whole new way to Satan's temptations and lies. At least know this. You are in the exact same condition that Jesus found himself in. You know, Jesus got tired too, right? You know, he got exhausted. He got hungry. He got tired. He found himself in places of great vulnerability. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew and Luke records in chapter 4 the story of Jesus' own temptation with Satan. And it says that it happens after he went out into the desert for 40 days. He had nothing to eat. Can you imagine being isolated and in solitude and having nothing to eat for 40 days? That's when Satan shows up, right? Not when Jesus like had a good night rest, everything's going great, and hey, Satan's here, whatever. It's when he's exhausted and he's defeated. And then that's when Satan shows up and says, boy, I bet bread sounds pretty good right now, right? I mean, see the stone right here? I bet you could turn that to bread like that. I mean, and so then he goes on and says, listen, I can give you all authority and power, which at the moment when you feel exhausted, I could use some of that. I mean, if you'll just only bow down and worship me. And so all of a sudden, these temptations begin to take place in the midst of Jesus' weaknesses when he's most vulnerable. And when did Jesus go after, when did Satan go after Jesus? When he hadn't eaten for 40 days because he's a jerk like that. You need to know that in the midst of your shipwreck, you will be exposed to Satan's temptations in a way you wouldn't be otherwise. You think you struggle with the temptation of lust right now? Just wait till you're in the middle of a shipwreck, and it will be far more intense. You think that you struggle with bitterness and unforgiveness just on a normal day? You wait till the middle of your shipwreck and see if Satan doesn't come along and tempt you in that direction more so, pulling you harder in that, in that way than you ever did before. This is why people in the midst of their shipwreck do crazy things. Like, you ever hear those stories? You find out somebody's embezzled a bunch of money from their workplace, and when you hear it, you go, You're, they stole, you, you can't believe it. I, I would have never guessed they would even be capable of something like that. And the answer is, normally they're not. But in the midst of a shipwreck, when you're treading water and you're flailing and you're panicking, all of a sudden Satan comes along and he tempts us to, you know, you really do work hard and you're really not getting paid like you should get paid. And all of a sudden temptation comes our way that it doesn't otherwise. And I don't like to give Satan more credit than he deserves, and nor am I in, in the camp of Satan's everywhere doing everything to everybody all the time. But you do need to know, when you're in the middle of a shipwreck, you need to steal yourself now and prepare yourself now for the exposure to Satan's temptations and lies. If you're not, you run the risk of having your own faith shipwrecked in the midst of your shipwreck. This is what Paul will say to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to the faith and, good, and a good conscience, conscience which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck in regards to the faith. And then he names a couple. Among them are like Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Which I don't even know what that means, but that doesn't sound good, does it? When you are experiencing a shipwreck in life, you'll need to prepare yourself for the temptation. And here's Satan's greatest tool in, in this moment. His greatest tool that he uses in the midst of your shipwreck is lies. He's going to lie to you. Like when everything around you feels like it's sinking, he's going to come in and say things to you that are not true. 
Jesus himself will say this about Satan in John 8, 44. You belong to, the, to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He's a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. In the midst of your shipwreck, your vulnerability, your despair, your situation, you will be exposed to Satan's lies. He's going he's to come and say things like this to you. He's going to say, you know, no one's looking out for you. You're all alone. No one really likes you. No one really loves you. And if you don't take care of you, then no one else will. You need to look out for number one. Or he'll come around and say things like this. You're so stupid. Like, you deserve this. Like, no, I, no that abuse, you brought it on yourself. In, in fact, this is probably God's way of punishing you for what you did. And, and he might love you barely, but he sure isn't going to forgive you for that. Or he comes around and he says things like that, like this. He says, yeah, your, your friend's suicide, you, you know that's your fault, right? Like, if you had just called an hour earlier and if you would have just said this, then none of that would have happened. This, in the end, really is on you. And when we hear that from our position, we think, well, who would ever buy that? But I'm telling you, when that's the moment that it hits and everything is sinking, Satan comes along and he's able to speak to us in ways that otherwise you go, oh, my goodness, it really is my fault. I really am responsible. He says things like, you know, if you don't do those things, your friends are going to turn their back on you and you're not going to have them as friends anymore. You're not going to be popular. You're not going to be cool. Or he says little things. There are little subtle things like, uh, you know, everyone does it. I mean, it's really no big deal. I mean, you can find a copy of the test online and get the answers from there. And if you don't, you, you might not do well and you'll get bad grades. You won't get in the college you want and you eventually will not get the career that you want. I mean, they're just little subtle things that all of a sudden become lies for us. Or, you know, that guy at work is way into you. And, and if you were with him rather than your husband, your life would be great. I mean, he's more attentive, he's more affectionate, he, he actually cares about your feelings and your life. Seriously, I mean, just think about how much better your life would finally be if you're with him rather than your husband. Or sometimes, I mean, just right out of the Bible, Satan comes around and says, did God really tell you that? I think he's just trying to keep you down. I think he's trying to keep you from having real knowledge or real pleasure or real life. And he knows, listen, if you taste that, your eyes are going to open up and you'll see what you've been missing the whole time. And so you need to know that in the moment of shipwreck, you become exposed to Satan's temptations and lies. Number two, you will also be exposed to great discouragement and doubt. In the midst of a shipwreck, you're going to be exposed to great discouragement and doubt. When things are going bad, when you just experienced a shipwreck, you want to hold on to that faith that believes in the end I'm going to prevail. And maybe on day one that could be kind of easy, even day two. Day three, oh no, it's coming right around the corner, my rescuer. But on day 47, all of a sudden discouragement hits big time. All of a sudden, doubt comes in a way that it hadn't before. You begin to think things like, maybe I'm not going to make it. And maybe this is it. Maybe I should just quit treading water right now and just go under. Maybe you've experienced this in a health issue where you have a, something happen in your health like a stroke. And you, it's like you take one step forward and then something happens. You go two steps back. And so you're doing the rehab. You're doing the work. And it's painful. And you think you're getting better. But the stroke affected your swallowing and now you're aspirating when you eat and drink and now you've got issues with your lungs and this pneumonia that's constant and reoccurring and then thing, next thing you know your heart disease flare. I mean it's just one thing after the other and it's one thing at the very beginning to go oh I'm going to prevail it's another thing in the end to be like if I go to one more doctor and have one more appointment get one more diagnosis and one more bad news discouragement and doubt comes as a wave have you ever just felt like nothing was going right in your life at all 
Like in every major significant area of your life, everything was either absent or sinking. You think about your marriage, that's no good. Children, not good. Job, not good. Finances, not good. I mean, it seems like everything you touch just slips away. You, you look over even at your dog, you're not even sure that he likes you anymore. And those are bad moments. Really bad moments. Let me give you a third. You're going to be exposed to stupidity. You're going to be exposed to stupidity. When everything sinks around you and it feels like, oh, I'm in the middle of the ocean. Now, what I mean by that, and I do see it all the time, when you were shipwrecked, you're going to have people come by and give you advice on what you should do, and it is stupid. There's water all around you. Just drink some of that. Remember in the Old Testament, the story of Job? Remember that story? You talk about shipwrecks. That guy loses everything. You know what happens when he loses everything? Three bozos show up in his life that are supposedly his friend to comfort him, and the whole time, well, you must have done something. You've got to be guilty. I mean, in the end, even God shows up at the end and says, you three boneheads are stupid. <laughs> I mean, that's Sam's paraphrase, but that's really what God says in the end. He makes them have to apologize. And I'm telling you, they're well-meaning, and they're not trying to bring you harm. They're not trying to sabotage you. They're just stupid. Now, how many of you have friends that you know that they're stupid, right? I mean, you don't have to look at them right now if they're in the room with you. Just, right? And that doesn't mean you don't love them. You love them. They're your friends. But you know, I'm not listening to this guy because he's kind of an idiot. But I love him, right? You go, that's kind of where you're at. Now, here's what you need to know. The Bible talks about there are moments in our life when we need wisdom. Like when you lack it, James, who's Jesus' brother, says, ask God for wisdom and he'll give it to you. Now, this is to help you so that when the stupidity calls to you, you go, time out on that. God, I need some serious wisdom now. And in addition to that, the Bible also refers to a gift from the Holy Spirit that's called discernment. Like some people actually have the gift of discernment from the Holy I think my wife has the spiritual gift of discernment. I can't tell you how many times I have seen her give me warning or uh, make a judgment call that wasn't even on my radar, and you could have handed me a telescope. I still wouldn't have seen it. And a few months later, it is exactly what she said was going to happen. Or the person responded exactly as she said it would. It's that gift of discernment. Like the elders here at the Living Stones Church, whom I love. And I'm telling you, if you ever are in a shipwreck, there's no one who is more of a stable, calming presence than our elders. But let me tell you what they have. I've just seen it over and over again. They have great wisdom, and they have the gift of discernment. And so those are what you want around you when you're going through shipwrecks. You want people who could speak not stupid things, but wise things and discerning things. And so you're going to be exposed, and you should just know this, to a lot of stupid in the midst of your shipwreck. Girlfriend, you just need to get out there and start dating again, right? Now, someday that might be a good idea, but right now, that's stupid. You're only going to be gone for a few hours. The kids are going to be just fine by themselves. Okay? That should be a stupid flag, right? Stupid. You deserve this. I mean, your tax returns are coming in, right? Just put it on your credit card. The money will come in. You can pay it off later. Stupid flag. That's what that should be for you. Girlfriend, you know what you ought to do? You should just go right into your boss's office right now and tell him you can take this job. and he could just, I mean, you fill in the blank and stupid. That's what all those should be to you. Here's what I'd say. Decide now your shipwreck survival plan. Whose voice are you going to seek in the midst of your shipwreck? Who is it in your life that you know has discernment and has wisdom? Who can help you survive your shipwreck and help you get to safety because their voices provide wise counsel? Who do you know that isn't just going to agree with everything you say, but, but they're even willing to risk hurting your feelings if it means they can help you avoid drowning? So, we are vulnerable to exposure in the midst of a shipwreck. You need to know that. Prepare yourself for it going into it. 
So how do we overcome exposure? What do we, what do, we do? Here's what you need. You need protection and covering. Like in the midst of a shipwreck, what you need first, uh, more than food and water, I'm telling you, it is protection and covering. You need something or someone that will protect you from being exposed or something or someone that will cover you in the midst of your exposure. In the greatest danger in the open sea is the heat and the effects of the sun. Really, just a tarp makes a perfect protection and covering. And momentary dips in the water serves as a shield for the body temperature to stay down and regulate. Or if it's to the other extreme, cold and wetness, a covering that's waterproof or dry or something that serves as a barrier to the wind and water is a perfect covering. So you'll need something like that in your life or someone like that in your life who will be for you protection and covering. Let me give you a few, few things you should go after. Number one, God himself will be your protection and your covering. That in the midst of your life shipwreck, God himself will be your protection and your covering. Let me give you two passages, and I would suggest you even write them down because someday you might be in the middle of a shipwreck and you're like, I need to go back and read that because I need to be reminded. So the first one is in Psalm 91. So just got a pen, a scrap sheet of paper, write down Psalm 91. I'm going to start at verse 4, but this is what it says here. The psalmist says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. See, this is what you need in the midst of a shipwreck. I need God to cover me and put me under his wings and under his feathers that I might be protected. So that he would be my shield and my rampart. Because as it says in verse 5, you will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge... And you make the most high your dwelling. No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent because he loves me, says the Lord. I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let me give you a second. It's actually in 2 Samuel chapter 22. This is David writing here. This is a song that David just breaks out to the Lord. And someday this might need to be your song. Like you're in the midst of something, and this will need to be your song. That's what he says in verse 2. He said, the Lord is my rock, and my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock, and whom I'm going to take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior from violent people. You saved me. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. I mean, listen to the imagery here. This is what we're talking about. The waves of death swirled around me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my dis- distress, I called out to the Lord. I called out to my God from his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. And smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were, were under his, his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him and dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrow and scattered the enemy with great bolts of lightning. He routed them. The valley of the sea 
was exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. Look at this next verse here. He says, he reached down from on high and took hold of me and he drew me up out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place and he rescued me because he delighted in me. Here's what I'd say. In the midst of your shipwreck, now is not the time to run away from God. Now is the time to run to God. And I get because sometimes in the circumstances of our shipwreck, we can get angry at God. I mean, I've been there. Where, where are you? Did you not see this? Like, really, you're just going to let this happen to me? And, and if you have those thoughts and you have those emotions towards God, I'm telling you, they're normal, but here's what you should do with them. Run to God with those emotions and thoughts. Go right to God and say, I'm hacked off. I'm, I'm angry with you. Where were you? Why has this happened? These, this is the language of lament, but it's still a directional thing. You're going to God in the midst of the shipwreck instead of away from God because the only alternative is to walk away from God and be angry. Go to, even in anger, go to God. Number two, God himself will be your protection and covering. Number two, by extension but different, seek protection and covering in the word of God. Seek protection and covering in the word of God. Now, God and the word of God are two different things. They're not the same thing. You want to find relationally protection in God himself, but he has also provided for us the Bible or the scriptures or his word as a means of covering and protection. Now, what's interesting is just go back to Jesus himself, right? Remember in his temptation? When Satan comes and tempts Jesus, how does Jesus respond? With the word of God. Every time Satan tries to tempt him to do something, Jesus comes right back with the scripture, with the passage from the word. He's got God's word as his covering and his protection in the midst of the temptation. When you are exposed, you'll be exposed to Satan's lies. And how do you combat lies? With the truth. God's word contains the truth and allows you then to combat Satan's lies. Now, I do want to say this. Here's a little warning in it. You're not the exception. And I say that because everyone thinks they're the exception. Like their situation, I know the Bible says this, but I'm really, my life circumstance, I mean, me and God have a deal, or, or you really believe this is the most unique, unheard of, never experienced situation in the history of the world, and so you're the exception to what the Bible says. And I, I'm telling you, listen to me, God does not look down at your, your situation and go, oh my goodness, I've never even seen this before. Like, I have never even heard of this before. Congratulations that you are the exception. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 and 16 do not apply to you. Now, everybody else it does, but you are, the, just, you are not the exception. You, you just need to know that. When you're exposed and overwhelmed with discouragement and doubt, the Word of God can protect you and cover you by allowing you to be reminded of who God is and who you are as it starts to fade in your despair. And the Word of God can increase your faith, and the Word of God can help expose stupid. Like when you hear stupid, it's the word of God that can equip you and train you and renew your thinking that even though you love your friends, you know, I'm not listening to that. Number, number four, or number three, it's one, God himself will be your covering and protection. Number two, the word of God will be your covering and protection. Number three, God has placed people and structures in place for our covering and protection. Now, let me close with this. God has placed people and structures in place for our covering and protection. Now, this isn't popular for us to think about because the principle behind it requires submission. And just as Americans, we don't like the idea of submission to anybody. Like submission is like, eh, kind of everyone gets all nervous and tense. Oh, no, it's going to I mean, and, so, and yet behind it, there really is a, now, and we all have a story, too, of abuse, which I've heard all those stories, too. But ultimately, what we see is in God's divine economy, he asks us to submit ourselves for our own protection and covering. And so he'll say, like in Ephesians 5.21, you should submit to one another. 
Even in, in the terms of the context of marriage, in Colossians 3.18, he calls for submission. Did you know that God has placed in our life spiritual leaders that have asked us to submit to them? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Did you know he even asks us to submit to the government in Romans 13.1? Even when they're not the government that you voted for, he asks us, right? For some, for some reason, in God's thinking and in his divine economy, your covering and your protection is best when you are under submission to governing authorities. Did you know kids, listen kids, you were asked to submit to your parents in Ephesians 6.1. And do you know why? To keep you down? No, that's not it at all. No. What does God know? God knows an eight-year-old, bless their eight-year-old little hearts, is not wise enough, smart enough, mature enough, experienced enough to make decisions that could affect them the rest of their life without the covering and protection of their parents. And this is why for you parents, I'd say, be parents. They don't need another friend. They need a parent who will cover them and protect them. And God has placed people in our life for our covering and our protection. They shield us from exposure in the midst of life storms. Here's what I would suggest you do. Find a few very good friends, people that you love and that you know love you, and ask them to cover you and protect you in prayer. Ask them if they would commit to just praying for you. And then give them very specific, I need you to pray for this in my life and pray for that in my life. Let their prayers serve as covering and protection over you. Find people who are willing to intercede on your behalf. I'm asking you as your pastor to pray for me, that I'm continually struggling through exposure to Satan's temptations or lies or discouragement or doubt or stupidity, and most of, most of the time my own. So in the vulnerability, I need covering of protection of prayer. Dad, Mom, cover your, cover your kids and protect them in prayer. Like when they're asleep at night, go in their room and just put your hand on their head and just pray that God would protect them and cover them. Pray against any schemes Satan might have in their life and just cover them. And husbands, wives, I'd say the exact same thing. Pray for your spouse and cover them and pray for them. Jesus tells us there's real authority in those kind of prayers. Matthew 18, verse 18 to 20 says, Listen, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there with them. Let me give you one more. The church is to be a covering and protection for us. The church. Now, I, I note that today a lot of people consider the church to be optional. You know, you, do the, you, know, you can love Jesus out the church. You, know, you, you don't need to go to church to be a follower of Jesus, which... I think is a radical misunderstanding of the definition of church and an unfounded idea in Scripture. But I hear it all the time, the idea of, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, or I love God, but I don't like organized religion. So let me just say this. Think about the church like the bark of a tree. So picture a tree in your mind. You know what I think is the ugliest part of the tree? The bark. It's by far the roughest. It's not smooth. It's not attractive. No kid goes to school and they give the assignment of going and getting a bark collection. It's always a leaf collection, right? Because the leaves are better. They're prettier. Or the fruit of the tree, it's better. Nobody really, in the end, gets into the bark very well. But the bark serves a very essential element in the life of the tree. The bark is the covering and the protection of the tree. If you remove the bark from a tree, what happens is the dynamic, growing, nutrient aspect of the tree is now exposed to the elements, to animals and insects, to disease. It becomes spiritually, or the tree becomes vulnerable. And the same thing is true. When you remove the church from your life, it's like stripping the bark off of your life and you become exposed in a way that you would not otherwise to spiritual disease and decay and vulnerabilities. And so I know the church isn't always the most attractive Sometimes it's not very smooth. Sometimes it could be ugly. 
but I think that God has placed it in our life as a protection and a covering. Will Jesus love you if you don't go to church? Yes, Jesus is going to love you if you don't go to church. But I would suggest that you probably won't love Jesus as much without church. That I've seen it in my 16 years here, this pastoral ministry, that those who follow that journey of just, I don't know if church is in my life, what I see is they eventually keep going down that road and find that their life looks less and less like Jesus would have for them. And Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so let me just offer to you that as ugly as it can be at times, I think it's a very essential covering for the spiritual life, the dynamic spiritual life that God intends. So in the midst of your shipwreck, exposure is your greatest threat. It is your greatest. Temptations and lies from Satan, discouragement and doubt, and just plain stupidity. And in the midst of we need protection and covering, which comes from God himself and the word of God, and then also in people and structures that he's placed for our sake. So bless you in the midst of any shipwreck you're in, and may you find cover and protection quickly from exposure. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and are grateful that you are a God who takes care of us, who loves us. And so I pray right now for your shield and your protection to be over us. That if any of us find ourselves in open sea and treading water, that you yourself will come down and reach down from heaven and rescue us. And in the midst of it, Father, that you would guard us and protect us from the things that we're exposed to. And so we ask, Father, that you would silence any lies that Satan might be trying to speak to us. That you would lead us away from any temptation that's coming our way. That you would keep us from being discouraged or having great doubt and instead increase our faith. And you'd protect us from just plain stupid. And so, Father, we ask this for your sake and our sake. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together.